Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Kelly Kareem. Kelly is a research ecologist at the Aldo Leopold Wilderness Research Institute in Missoula, Montana. She received her Bachelor's of Arts in Biology from Carleton College and her PhD in Fish and Wildlife Biology from the University of Montana. Her research combines genetic tools and information, as well as aquatic ecology to inform stewardship of wilderness areas and to understand the benefits of wilderness to broader landscapes and ecosystems. Her research interests are broad and include engaging diverse partnerships to address conservation and management of aquatic resources. In her spare time, she enjoys cross-country ski racing and spending time outdoors with her partner, Tyler, and her best canine friend, Robbie. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. (laughs) Thanks, Katie. I'm super excited to be here today. I'm so excited to have you. I always like to start with people's background. So how did you first get interested in fisheries? Yeah, that is a really good question because I did not grow up fishing. (laughs) And I think there are a lot of people in our field that are super passionate, right, and have this really close Mm -hmm. relationship with um, the organisms that they study. And that's not exactly uh, the route that or that's not exactly my path as to how I got here. So I guess a little deeper dive into my background. I'm half Indian. Uh, My father was from India and he was a biomedical engineer. And we were the child of someone who is Indian. Usually it's, you know, ideally you're a medical doctor. An engineer is also really great. And a lawyer is maybe okay. Um, But but being an ecologist is sort of like, well, (laughs) you know, I don't don't really know. Um, But... I was always interested in biology and knew that a medical degree was just not what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And when I left undergrad, I knew that I was interested in ecology and conservation. And I also found genetics very interesting. And so looking for graduate degree opportunities that kind of bridged or combined those two topics. So thinking about conservation genetics and molecular ecology So when we think about fish, they're a really great organism for bringing together these concepts of genetic information and ecological questions. And a lot of that has to do with the role that fish play in our society and the way that our economies benefit from them. So when we think about salmon stocks in the Pacific Northwest, they're a really important source of substance for people. They're also a really important economic driver in our society. And so we've just done a lot of work on fish. The other thing is you usually get a pretty good sample size. So when you go to a creek and you're looking at a population, you can usually get enough individuals to actually do some analyses with some amount of statistical power. So fish are a really great area to start connecting some of those dots. So when I was looking at grad schools and looking at professors that were doing research that piqued my interest, fish just kind of so happened to be the, the focal species. So I came to the University of Montana, where I worked with Dr. Lisa Eby, looking at trade-offs in, in conservation management for West Slope cutthroat trout and looking at hybridization with rainbow trout, um, non-native rainbow trout on one side, which is a genetic issue. And then on the other side, looking at the effects of isolation of cutthroat trout, The benefit there is that you prevent those interactions with invasive species, but at the same time, there's a risk of inbreeding, and that's also something that we assess with genetic information. So 
that's how I got into fisheries. Awesome. So how would you say, because you've continued to work around Missoula, Montana on some similar issues, how would you say your research interests have evolved from when you started your PhD through your current work? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. I have found that research spawns more research, uh, yeah. pun, pun not intended. But yeah, <laughs> when you answer a research question, you have a research question, you have a hypothesis. And when you answer that, usually you start finding other little mysteries and generating new hypotheses. And so I've had some work that has kind of evolved out of my PhD or my dissertation work. And that included kind of drilling down more into possibilities for local adaptation in isolated cutthroat trout. And that's important to understand if we're trying to maintain populations on the landscape in an isolated fashion, right? Like preventing those interactions with non-native species comes at the risk of having populations that if they blink out, if there's a debris flow or an ice jam that wipes out a population, how do we think about how we're going to restore that? Where should those fish come from? Are they locally adapted? So I think I'll talk a little bit more um, in a minute about some of the ultrasound work that's come out of that, but also kind of taking some of my interests and concepts and applying those to new species and exploring the breadth of, of fish out there. We spend a lot of time thinking about salmonids and there are so many more fish out there yes. that are very interesting. So that's been one way that my interests have evolved. So getting interested in different species and then also thinking about more diverse tools and applications for genetic information. So I've spent, since my PhD, a lot of time developing environmental DNA applications and then using environmental DNA to start answering ecological questions. And then I guess, you know, finally, one of the ways that my work has evolved since my PhD is working with a greater diversity of partners across the broader landscape. So I've been working with the Forest Service pretty much since I wrapped up my PhD. And one of the great things about working for an agency like the Forest Service is they are managing a really large land base. And so with that, you know, growing opportunities to move outside um, the scope of Western Montana, which is a great place to do fisheries research, but there are a lot of other places out yeah. there too, and a lot of other people that have really interesting questions. Yeah, absolutely. That actually ties in really well with my next question. Oh, good. So when you were doing some of your Forest Service work prior to this position you're in now, mm -hmm. you were the tribal project coordinator, right? Yeah, that's correct. So what was involved in that work? And do you have any advice for people that would like to conduct more collaborative work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with that work, I was mostly the project lead or working on projects where the primary partner uh, was a tribal biologist or somebody from a tribal natural resource agency. Tribes often have similar conservation and management objectives as state and federal agencies when it comes to protecting our native fish species. They often have co-management rights, and so it's not just interest, it's it's a, it's a legal right to manage those resources in collaboration with state and federal agencies. And then a lot of times we have areas where there are abutting boundaries of tribal lands and our public lands and wildlife do not care <laughs> about those boundaries. And so collaborating with tribes is really critical if we're working to achieve these common goals of 
protecting our aquatic resources. So in that position, I kind of took my background and expertise and worked with tribes that had an interest in using some of these genetic tools and applying genetic information to address management questions. And so with that, I, I had the opportunity to work on a lot of diverse problems with a lot of different tribal partners, everything from kind of exploring and understanding everything from uh, looking at the response of Chinook salmon to reintroduction efforts using eDNA and tracking um, northern pike invasions in different areas of the Columbia River Basin to looking at genetic assignment of invasive species to understand the sources of where they're originating from. Oh, and there was one more part to that question, right? Um, what advice do I have for people that like to conduct that work? Mm-hmm. This is a really great question. What advice do I have for people that would like to conduct more collaborative work with tribes? I would say that you need to make sure you're treating these partnerships as exactly that. They need to be partnerships. So effective engagement with tribes includes understanding their histories and their rights and providing space for them to contribute to the work from the beginning. All too often, tribes are approached after the fact. They're notified of work after it's happened, um, or they're not included or notified at all. And, you know, understanding that they are not just stakeholders or interested parties, they are often right holders, and Mm -hmm. that they were the original stewards of this land that we are all living on. So we have so much that we can learn from them, and those partnerships are critical. And I'd also say that these partnerships take time to build. You need to understand and really work to understand where there are common goals and objectives and where those goals and objectives may not overlap. And when you have those differences, you need to respect those differences. Yeah, absolutely. We don't have to necessarily include this question. I just have been Mm -hmm. thinking more about it. Was it a priority for you with trying to keep work going where you're based in Missoula so that you could continue these partnerships? Because I feel like academia and a lot of jobs in research, you're so like fluid and moving. And so it seems like it'd be hard to really build and commit to these partnerships mm-hmm. when you're like moving around or don't know where your job's going to be. So is that a priority for you to stay in one place? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I did not think about my physical location as the biggest necessity, like with continuing tribal partnerships or investing in those partnerships, I definitely have relationships with colleagues that are working for tribal natural resource agencies that I haven't met before in person, or mm-hmm. that you know I've only had the opportunity to meet them a couple of times in person. And so I think today with our ability to just do so much work remotely and Zoom and have phone calls and um, get a lot of work done that way that your physical location isn't necessarily a limitation, but it is necessary that you don't let the limitations associated with that remoteness get in the way. And so when I've had the opportunities to get out there and actually meet people in person, it's it's been really critical to to take those opportunities and engage in that. And then, you know, and I think you mentioned in my bio that I'm now at the Aldo Leopold Wilderness Research Institute. I've been there for about a year and um, I've had some projects that I've had to kind of let go of because they're not necessarily within the scope of my new position, particularly with my 
movement towards a bigger focus on wilderness. So that's been really hard to let go of these relationships that I've spent a lot of time building. But the important part there is making sure that those projects are being handed off thoughtfully and not just sort of disappearing and saying, well, you know, I'm done, I'm out. It's not my responsibility anymore because that's not a partnership, right? If you have a partnership, you care about what happens and you care about time you've spent building that partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I need to stop saying that was a good segue because then it makes it not a good segue. <laughs> I think one of the things I struggled with with coming up with questions for this is that you've done so much cool work. So I am trying to not make you talk about all of your projects that you've done. <laughs> so I wanted to focus in on your current work at the Aldo Leopold Wilderness Research Institute and wondering what projects are you most excited about in this current role? And if you have projects you're excited about in your previous roles, that's totally cool to cover as well. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm first of all flattered that you think I have so many cool projects. You know, I I think so too, but maybe I'm biased because <laughs> they were my projects. So, um, or projects I should say that I I had a lot of investment in. But yeah, so some of the projects I'm working on now, um, the bigger projects are truly carryover projects that I was working on before, but do have relevance within a wilderness scope. So thinking about where are these organisms persisting and then also thinking about climate change, you know, what is wilderness going to provide for these organisms moving forward? So one of the realms that I've been working in is Pacific lamprey um, and also lamprey in general. So with Pacific lamprey, I've been working for, gosh, probably the last five years on a project that we call the Basin-Wide Lamprey Inventory and Monitoring Project, or BLIMP for short. It's important to have these good uh, abbreviated names for your projects. It just helps you keep things straight and it's good to have a sense of humor too, right? Anyway, the the eBLIMP project, the E is for eDNA, Basin-Wide Lamprey Inventory and Monitoring Project, uses environmental DNA to understand the distributions of Pacific lamprey across their historic range in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. One of the biggest challenges to protecting the species is simply knowing where they are, which is crazy to me, right? Like we know so much about salmon. We know so much about salmon and the types of work that people are doing on salmon is incredible. It's really, really focused right? We're like, oh, what is the mechanism leading to the upregulation of this gene that's leading to the transcription of this protein? And with Pacific lamprey, a lot of the work we're doing is like, where are they? You know, it's a really simple question, which is also really satisfying to answer sometimes, right? And just having a really straightforward question like that. So that's a big project that I've been working on, and we're starting to roll out a lot of results. We've had partnerships across Idaho, Oregon, and Washington that have made this possible. To get eDNA samples from across a really broad landscape takes a lot of boots on the ground, and so we've been really fortunate to have a lot of partners helping us from state, tribal, local community, like watershed councils, federal agencies, so that's been really fun. Another one of the lamprey projects I've been working on is a freshwater lamprey project that's been focused in the Willamette Valley. And that started out actually with the intent of being an environmental DNA project. The first step with eDNA is having a marker in the lab that can detect your species of interest. And so it's sort of like when we have these genetic samples, we need a species-specific magnet that can pull out the DNA we're interested in and say like, yes, aha, Pacific lamprey are here, right? 
So I was working with a colleague at the Forest Service, Doug Larson, who was interested in knowing where freshwater lamprey were in the Willamette. And I said, okay, great. The first thing we need are tissue samples from these fish so that we know what they look like genetically. And we can develop that marker or that magnet that is specific to this freshwater lamprey and pull it out from the whole hodgepodge of DNA that's in an environmental sample. In the process of collecting all of those tissues, Doug and, and his crew basically ended up sampling a whole lot of the Willamette Valley and realized, well, now with all this electrofishing we've done, we kind of figured out where all of the, the lamprey were to the extent that we were interested in you know, defining their, their distribution. So are there other questions we can ask? Um, and specifically with our lamprey in Western North America, there um, is a lot of just uncertainty in the taxonomic relationships among them. And so Doug said, well, you know, the next question is like, what species exactly do we have here? We just knew they were freshwater lamprey in the genus Lampetra, but we didn't really know much more. And so I've been working on a broader scale project to kind of place those organisms in the Willamette in the context of what are all the other species that are out there. I am hoping that this manuscript describing this project is almost ready for submission. It's been a little bit of a, a long haul, but the long story short is there is a lot of diversity in freshwater lamprey both genetic diversity, species diversity. There are a lot of undescribed species of freshwater lamprey in Western North America. And there's a lot of life history diversity. And the thing that is super interesting about this is that these fish are evolutionarily very old. They've been around for a really long time. And so we have a lot that we can learn from them. And we haven't even looked. <laughs> we haven't even spent that much time looking at them. So that's another really cool project that I've, I've been excited about. One of kind of taking a left turn and going a little bit back towards some of my work from my PhD is looking at life history diversity in salmonids uh, with an emphasis on understanding resident life histories. So one of the things that came out of my PhD was some curiosity around how is it that cutthroat trout can persist under isolation in really teeny tiny streams under really harsh conditions. And what some hypotheses that came out of that were these fish must be reaching maturity at a really small size in order to reproduce as soon as possible before they die. So, right, that's going to be population persistence. You need to reproduce before you die if the population is, is going to persist. And so in a lot of these populations, they're really delicate. Um, we don't want to do anything invasive that's going to hurt the population. And so thinking about how can we assess maturation? How can we get an understanding of when these fish are maturing? And probably most of your listeners know this, but when you think about population persistence, it's females that are really driving this. So males are not so important. Let that sink in a bit. Um, and uh, females are, are the ones that are driving the population because they're the ones with all of the eggs. They have so much investment and eggs are really valuable from that standpoint, right? So um, a lot of population viability models are based on female reproduction, survival, et cetera. So we wanted to be able to identify maturing females in West Slope cutthroat trout. We used ultrasound to develop a method for doing this in cutthroat trout, which 
was not novel in the sense that many people have been using ultrasound to identify whether or not fish have eggs. But what was novel about this is first that we were imaging fish not weeks before they spawned, but months before they spawned. So we found that we could image cutthroat trout in October and find females with eggs. So we don't need to get in there in the spring when they're actively spawning or preparing to spawn and when creeks are really difficult to sample. We can do this work in the fall. And we can also start to identify variation in that life history trait, the size of maturation. And we found very dramatic differences across a subset of isolated cutthroat trout populations with the size of maturity in female fish. So that, that was super cool. So a little bit of a methods kind of paper, but I'm hoping to take that and maybe look at bull trout for understanding the prevalence of resident life histories in bull trout. And that's going to be really critical as we lose migratory bull trout life histories to climate change and warming waters. And we've seen this happen, you know, already for bull trout across their range as we're losing those migratory life histories. And then kind of tying this into wilderness in the West, a lot of our headwater areas are wilderness, and that is where a lot of our cold water species like to live, right? The other thing about wilderness is it is incredibly remote. It is difficult to get there. So uh, the last project I'd like to mention that I'm really excited about is going to be a master's project. Dr. Lisa Eby and I will be co-advisors, and we're going to have a master's student who We'll be collecting environmental DNA samples in the Bob Marshall Wilderness here in Western Montana to determine the distribution of various aquatic species, one of which will be bull trout. And then also looking at different habitat characteristics that define those distributions in the Bob Marshall with an emphasis on wildfire history and severity. And the relevance there is that in wilderness, we have a very hands-off approach to wildfire management. It's a wilderness areas are a place where we like to or strive to kind of keep our keep our hands out of it. So this is going to be a really fun project. And I'm hoping that can build into more work on actually looking at bull trout in the Bob Marshall as a population that we basically assume is the last best population of bull trout, right? It, it is what we assume is the last functioning um, meta population of bull trout and we don't know much about them because it is so remote and difficult to get there. But understanding how they're persisting, how they're persisting in the face of climate change, but without these direct human impacts, such as roads and hybridization with non-native species or the impacts of non-native species, like a, a bunch of these impacts that are leading to declines of bull trout in other areas, understanding how are they functioning without those sort of direct impacts is going to be really useful for understanding bull trout persistence across the landscape, across their range. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope it works out. <laughs> These are all big ideas. Yeah, for sure. I've been thinking a lot about multiple life histories because I added a part on my project with Yellowstone cutthroat and mm. trying to assess like the genetics of both the migratory Yellowstone cutthroat and then yeah. how the, how connected they are to the resident populations as well mm -hmm. and just really seeing if there's any similar genetic variation across those hasn't worked out well because you know flooding mm -hmm. and stuff so yeah. we'll see if I get enough samples but it's really interesting to think about the variety of life history strategies yeah. that exist just within one species or one subspecies. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 
The other thing too is a lot of times these that variety is not genetically driven, which has huge implications for how we manage fish. And it's not all bad, right? Like mm-hmm. sometimes it's disappointing if you're like, oh, there's you know, have this super cool hypothesis and you're yeah. like, well, I guess that's what I thought. But um I guess another another project that kind of was born out of some of this cutthroat life history work was looking for genetic signals that are drivers of life history variation in cutthroat trout. And some of that work is showing that at least in our study area, there doesn't appear to be really huge genetic drivers. So, you know, it's not super cool, sexy nature or science paper (laughs) kind of research if you don't have like this, you know, catchy finding. But there's a lot of hope then to say like, oh, well, you know, the risk of outbreeding depression, if you move some fish either to increase abundance of a population or to add genetic diversity, if you determine that inbreeding depression is a problem, the risk of outbreeding depression could be really low, right? Because there may not be actual actual local adaptation to these traits. They may be a plastic response just to the environment. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool information and having a, a null hypothesis be yeah. accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's kind of nice to think that if the migratory populations did link out, that it's not genetically driven. And if you were able to do some, some restoration, it could come back. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some really cool work. I It's not work I've been involved in, but looking in the Elwha River with the removal of the Elwha Dam mm-hmm. and the return of so many anadromous species, like gives you a little bit of hope. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. One thing I always like to ask people partially because it's selfish and I kind of forget how to live my life outside of being a scientist, but what hobbies and interests do you have outside of your work? Yeah, you touched on that in my bio. I am a really avid Nordic ski racer, cross-country ski racer, and that is one thing that helps me tear myself away from my computer mm-hmm. <laughs> um, having a having something else I like to do that's not related that I really care about so yeah I spend a lot of time thinking about that and doing that especially in the winter time and also I love my dog yeah. <laughs> my dog is my dog Ravi is uh probably one of the, the only things in life he is the only thing in life I can say is if there are no goals there's no expectations I just he's just good in the moment and yeah my husband Tyler and I like to spend a lot of time outdoors and enjoying a lot of these spaces that you know in fisheries we're working to protect so yeah that's how I like to spend my time outside of work yeah awesome well this brings us to the end of what we call the tough part of the interview it brings us to our final five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show and the first one is what is your favorite fish I have to say this is a rotating special. The more I learn about any species, the more interesting I find them. And I think that's true of a lot of things in life. So today I am really interested. My favorite fish are are those uh, species in the Lampetra genus, freshwater lamprey of Western North America. That's that's the catch of the day for me. (laughs) Good. (laughs) What is your favorite memory from your career so far? I really liked this question too. Uh, I would have to say my dissertation defense. That was really fun. I was super flattered at how many people showed up to hear me talk. And importantly, my dad was there. And so that was really special to get my PhD and have him see that. And, And by that time, I had finally convinced him that ecology was science. And, you know, I use microscopes and pipettes and it's the real deal. So that was my favorite memory for my career so far. 
That's awesome. What is your dream job and or location? You know, I think I... <laughs> I'd have to say I'm living it right now. Um, I really like the flexibility of my position. So as a federal research grade scientist, you have incredible flexibility with how you pursue your research interests. And so that's really cool to be able to kind of follow these pathways that pique your interest, right? Like it's such a luxury. And as far as location, I really like Missoula, but that's also more related to my personal interests. I wish Missoula had more snow. I wish yeah. it was a little less smoky in the summer times. And, you know, for me personally, I wish it was a little more diverse. I grew up in the Twin Cities. That's an, a pretty big urban area with a lot of diversity, but Missoula is a good fit for me. And there's no perfect place. And I found a really great sense of community here. So I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. Awesome. Okay. So if money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? So I found this question really interesting because it suggests that money is the biggest limitation in the work we do. And for me, at least so far in my career, that hasn't really been my experience. Some of the bigger challenges I've encountered are more related to time and the amount of time it takes to do things or not having enough time and also kind of working on the people side of things. So when you're working with really diverse groups, it can be hard because you're working with people that don't always see eye to eye on an issue. And it's really important to take the time to listen and understand where everybody's coming from, particularly when we have these different perspectives. So earlier I mentioned the importance of taking the opportunities to connect with partners one-on-one. -on -one, and I'd love to have more resources, particularly time for those in-person meetings. And some of the most valuable experiences I've had in my career have been when I've been able to meet with people in person, particularly in the field. And when it comes to working with Indigenous partners, that's been incredibly valuable for really beginning to understand the cultural connections to the places and the species that we're working on. But, you know, kind of on that note, when it comes to more time and resources for travel, there are a lot of places where I've had research projects and I haven't physically seen those systems. For example, I've never had the opportunity to see or hold a live freshwater lamprey. I think that seeing these organisms in their environment, in their habitat, is really a useful perspective for any ecological project and thinking about how you're interpreting your data. But, you know, kind of bringing it back to money in one place I can see where having endless funding will be really useful moving forward is in the realm of wilderness. And so wilderness areas, as I mentioned, are really remote. Um, the Wilderness Act prohibits mechanized transport in wilderness. And so that means that with a lot of places, we have to get there by foot or by pack stock. And so that is really time and resource intensive. And then there are a lot of places like in Alaska where there just there aren't even trails. And so having resources to support field crews out there to get out to those places and then maybe having support for um, living in camp for a while when you're collecting data out there, I think is going to be really valuable. And then also taking advantage of the areas where it is allowed for us to access some of these remote areas by planes. So whether that's float planes in Alaska, which is really common, or there are other areas where we have narrow airstrips that are not, you know, considered wilderness and so we can fly in, but those flights are expensive too. So I think that's one area right now where I see funding potentially being really helpful. And I'm still early in my career. And so thinking about building my research program in a couple of years, I'll probably have some 
bigger research proposals and bigger ideas that I'm really excited about but can't get funded. So if money <laughs> if money wasn't an issue, then kind of continuing to work on all of the possible directions of research. Awesome. Wilderness sounds so cool to work in, but also so complicated. <laughs> It is. It honestly is. As I was talking with folks in Alaska, was there a lot of people that do super cool research up there? And I'm like, so like, is there so much wilderness up there? And then realizing that it's, it's just not accessible and dangerous, right? Yeah. There are animals that will eat you and a lot of them. And then down here, there's a lot of politics and wilderness, you know, like you get a lot of stuff gets litigated because, you know, oh, like, thinking about wilderness character and this balance of not having too much human influence, but also wanting to protect places from invasive species and places where, you know, we stocked fish in the past, not realizing that they were going to be a problem and things like that. It's delicate. Yeah. Right. All right. The last question is if there was one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? This was another really great question. And, you know, it's tempting to go down a road of like, you should know this one thing about fish. <laughs> but again, it, for me, it kind of comes back to the people side of things. And the one thing I would like everybody to have programmed into their heads is that how you treat people matters. So treat other people with respect and check yourself. <laughs> I'm not saying you have to like everybody and you're certainly not going to agree with everybody, but in our field, we're usually all here for a common reason, right? We're all interested in the science. We're all interested in protecting our fisheries and aquatic resources. And we care about these organisms and the ecosystems they live in. So hopefully we can find common ground there. And I promise you that no matter what your goal is, treating other people with respect, checking your ego, and truly taking a collaborative approach to your work is going to make you more successful in reaching your goals, no matter what your goal is. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I do want to ask while we're still recording is if people want to get a hold of you, how could they do that? Yeah, um, I think I'm pretty easy to find yeah. with a Google search. <laughs> um, interestingly, there's not that many Kelly Kareems out there. But um, yeah, if you Google search my name, you'll find the Aldo Leopold Wilderness Research Institute website. And my contact info is on there. But I can just spell out my email, too, for anyone that's interested. It's kelly.kareem at usda.gov. So that's K-E-L-L-I-E dot c-a-r-i-m at usda.gov awesome thank you so much <laughs> yeah i hope you all enjoyed this episode if you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast you can find me at kb hindley on twitter and the podcast is on twitter facebook and instagram at fisheries pod or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com as always, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, how you treat people matters. Mm-hmm.